Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. On today's episode, the History Guy tells two stories of outrageous art heists of some important works of art. First, he tells the story of the Altarpiece of Ghent, one of the most stolen artworks in history, and the unlikely robbery that is still unsolved to this day. Then he tells the story of Goya's Wellington, which was stolen from the National Gallery in London in a brazen but amateur attempt to get retirees television licenses. Without further ado, let me introduce... The History Guy. In the 1420s, two brothers began work on what would become one of the most important paintings in the Western world. Little could they know as they began the massive multi-paneled work that travails that it would go through in hundreds of years of war and strife, only to survive almost intact into the modern day. It was transformative in its time, considered by many art historians to be the first major oil painting, and it has been admired by millions of people since it was created. So admired, in fact, that it has become famous as one of the most stolen works of art in the world. And among its many thefts, one stands out because it is the only time that a piece of this amazing work was stolen, never to be returned. It is a historical whodunit that deserves to be remembered. The Ghent Altarpiece, properly titled The Adoration of the Mystic Lamb, was commissioned in the 1420s by the mayor of the Flemish city of Ghent, Jodicus Badge, and his wife Lisbeth. Both were members of powerful families, and Jodicus was one of the most politically powerful men of the city. In this period, Ghent was one of the largest and most important cities in all of Europe. In the 13th century, it had become the second largest city in Europe, north of the Alps, second only to Paris, and it was larger than either Cologne or Moscow. As many as 65,000 people lived within the city's walls, and while it was nominally part of the Burgundian state, the city was powerful and wealthy enough to be ruled essentially as a city-state. It became wealthy especially through the wool trade and the production of cloth, and became heavily industrialized in the High Middle Ages. The Adoration of the Mystic Lamb is huge, made up of 12 panels arranged in two registers or levels. The individual panels can be closed, and on its outer panels are another eight panels. Fully open, the piece measures 5.2 meters by 3.75 meters, or roughly 17 feet by 12 feet 4 inches. Altogether, the large panels with their paintings weigh two and a half tons. According to a now-lost inscription that had been on the frame, the piece was created by two brothers, Hubert and Jan van Eyck. Jan is considerably more famous, and was considered even in his own time as one of the best painters of the era. Jan, however, left an inscription, now lost, that credits Hubert as major co nemo repertus, greater than anyone, and Jan as arte segundus, or second best in art. Its construction and planning in the 1420s are generally thought to have been carried out by Hubert, who died in 1426, leaving the piece to be completed by Jan in 1432. Whatever the circumstances of its painting, by 1432 it was displayed in the St. Bravo Cathedral. Originally, the altarpiece also included a large carved outer frame and surround, which may have included clockwork mechanisms which could move the shutters or play music. This outer frame was destroyed during the Reformation, and little information about it survives. When open, twelve panels depict hundreds of figures. In the top register, there is at the center Christ, flanked by the Virgin Mary and John the Baptist. The next panels out depict heavenly choirs, and the outermost depict a naked Adam and Eve. The lower register holds a single scene depicting hundreds of figures surrounding a lamb. Full of Christian iconography, the panels are painted with incredible detail, and when closed, eight panels are displayed painted less vibrantly to contrast with the inner images and depicting more religious figures. In general, the altarpiece remained closed except on feast days. Even in its earliest days, the piece was coveted as a symbol of wealth and power. It was moved numerous times, has been the victim of significant crime and theft. 
A fire in the 16th century destroyed the painting's platform, which had depicted hell. And during the Protestant Reformation, the entire piece was removed from the church to save it from the great iconoclasm in which groups destroyed various religious images and paintings as heretical. The work was plundered during the French Revolution and exhibited at the Louvre until it was returned in 1815 after Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo. Much of the painting was then pawned for a pittance by the Diocese of Ghent and would be sold eventually to King Frederick William III of Prussia and displayed in the Berlin Museum. Some panels remained in Ghent but were seized by German forces during World War I. The Treaty of Versailles stipulated the return of the entire work in compensation for acts of destruction during the war. Despite its harrowing journeys, the paintings themselves remained intact by 1934 and in the same location where they had originally been installed more than 500 years before in Ghent. All of that changed on the morning of April 11th, 1934. That day, a steward at the church began his morning rounds when he noticed that the door to the chapel had been left unlocked. When he entered, fearful of what he might find, it appeared nothing was amiss. It wasn't until later that he removed the cover from the altarpiece to find that one of the panels of the great painting was missing. A note was left behind in the frame that said, Taken from Germany by the Treaty of Versailles. The Germans simply were not happy that the painting had been returned to Belgium. Not so much at stake because of the pieces that had been stolen by soldiers during the war, but the larger piece of the painting had been legitimately bought after the painting had been sold from Ghent in 1815. According to historian Michael J. Kurtz, the Germans bitterly resented the loss of the panels. In their place in the German museum where they had once hung, a note was left reading, Taken from Germany by the Treaty of Versailles. The Knoxville, Tennessee Journal reported that the space in front of the placards was a favorite spot on which to gather for a new strafing of the Allies, a perfect symbol spot to grouse about the humiliation and punishment doled out to Germany at the end of the Great War. The piece that was stolen was the Just Judges or Righteous Judges panel, along with its accompanying opposite side image, John the Baptist. The two pieces were actually separate, as they had been sought apart in 1894, so both sides of the panel could be displayed at once. According to the newspaper The Guardian, when the theft was initially reported, the police commissioner only examined the scene briefly, as a large crowd had gathered, and instead returned to a case nearby that he had already been investigating, a theft on the same night from a cheese shop. The police apparently had no clues, but the investigation was kept quiet. Nineteen days later, when a ransom note was sent to the Ghent bishop, the thieves demanded a million Belgian francs for the return of the panels. According to the Staffordshire Evening Sentinel, the amount demanded was equivalent to about 8,500 pounds. Adjusted for inflation, the demand was about 650,000 pounds, or $800,000. The letter included instructions for how the money would be passed to the thieves, as well as instructions for the bishop to respond in the small ads of a Belgian paper. The letter was signed D-U-A. The diocese passed the letter to the authorities, but declared themselves willing to raise the ransom. Authorities, including agents of the crown, were, however, more interested in catching the perpetrators. The government decided that since the pending was a national treasure, that the interests of the nation superseded those of the diocese. Letters continued to arrive. On May 26th, the third letter included a receipt for a luggage office in Brussels, where the thieves had left as a gesture of good faith the panel of the painting of St. John the Baptist. The railway employee could only say that the man who left the package was about 50 years old. The next letter demanded that the million francs be delivered to a vicar in Antwerp. The police instead gave the vicar only 25,000 francs, along with a letter of demands. On June 14th, a taxi stopped at the vicar's house in the afternoon, taking the package in exchange for a piece of newspaper. The vicar's housekeeper reported that someone in the back seat of the taxi was wearing glasses. Of course, the thieves were unhappy about the package. They stressed that they had risked their lives to take the panels and that what they asked was not excessive. They called the police demands, primarily about how the panel would be exchanged, unacceptable. They now demanded that they would only return the panel after receiving the ransom, offering only to return the panel for 500,000 francs and for an additional 400,000 to be delivered a year later. If the offer wasn't accepted, the author wrote that it would result in the automatic destruction of one of the most beautiful showpieces of history. Letters and responses continued to pass in the following months, but little was gained, with the authorities refusing to budge and DUA continuing to threaten the panel. 
The 13th and last letter was received on October 2nd, offering again that the panel could be saved, but also including the following passage. Please accept, Monsignor, my honorable regards, as well as my regret that you did not treat the people in this historical matter with enough dignity. No more letters were received. On November 25, 1934, there was a meeting at the Holy Mary College in Dendermonde. One of the speakers, Arsène Hodetier, was struck by either a heart attack or stroke and forced to his deathbed. He told his lawyer that he was the only one who knows where the mystic lamb is and directed him to an envelope in his desk. There, the lawyer found copies of the letters and the handwritten 14th letter. I am the only one in this world who knows where the just judges rest. Hodetier wrote, It rests, he said, in a place where nor I nor anybody else can take it without catching the attention of the public. They found three keys, including one to a roof door at the cathedral in Ghent, and a luggage receipt to the typewriter on which he wrote the letters. The confession wasn't reported to the police for a month. The authorities concluded that he was the thief, but the location of the painting remains unknown, even 90 years later. Ever since it was stolen, there has been a detective assigned to the case. Mystery still surrounds the case. Hodetier was an odd man. He'd worked for the church, though not at the St. Bravo Cathedral. But by 1934, he worked as a stockbroker. He was a painter, an avid reader of detective novels, and himself an amateur detective who had followed various local cases. He had a collection of novels by Maurice LeBlanc, in which a criminal communicated through newspapers with initials. Later investigation included a servant who recalled him being angry when she caught him wrapping up a long object in May of that year. Carol Mortier, chief of the Ghent police from 1974 to 1991, discovered a reference that Hodetier had night blindness, was too short to have committed the crime himself. The letters always use we in reference to other friends possibly involved. What few other suspects have been examined have not been proven to be involved. Morche also found out that Odetier already had more than a million francs in the bank, making his motive less clear. The police have been accused of bungling the case. They failed to question the lawyer or any of the other men who had been with Odetier the day he died. They never looked for fingerprints on the letters or the typewriter, and not staked out post offices, although they knew where the letters were coming from. They didn't question Odetier's wife, who said that her husband had made a few strange comments. If I had to go looking for the panel, I would look outside of St. Bravo, he allegedly said. She also said that she heard him say the painting was only moved, not stolen. His sickly son, 13 years old, died just six months afterwards, muttering, Police, thieves, police, thieves. The police became convinced that the painting was somewhere in or near the cathedral, but neither their searches nor extensive searches in the years since have found it. The man who was found to have committed the theft from the cheese shop and another witness claimed to have seen a black car at the cathedral the night of the robbery, and the cheese thief even identified the two men in the car 13 years later in 1947. One was a local smuggler, but the name of the other isn't certain, as the police seem to have never written the name down. During World War II, there was an effort to preserve the painting by sending it to the Vatican in Rome. The painting was en route when Italy joined the Axis and so was instead stored at a museum in France. In 1942, it was seized by the Nazis at Adolf Hitler's direct order, and in 1945, it was recovered by the Allied Monuments, Fine Arts and Archives program and returned to Ghent. But the panel was still missing. In fact, after the Nazis seized the painting, they tried to track down the missing panel, but without success. Morche believed that there may have been a cover-up and that members of the church itself may have aided in the theft, possibly because they had lost money in investment, which could connect them to Hotetier, the stockbroker. And more mysteries abound. In 1938, a lawyer approached the government on behalf of an anonymous client, claiming to have the painting and offered to return it for 500,000 francs. The offer was turned down. The same year, another painter and famous restoration artist, Jan van der Vecken, made a copy of the work without any prompting. It has some differences from the original, but investigators have wondered, did he have on hand the original to use as a reference? Some even believe that he had merely painted over the original, although that has proven to be untrue. The copy was eventually sold to the cathedral, and now takes the place of the original. The only thing certain about the theft is that the piece remains missing. Since it was stolen, hundreds of different theories have arisen from alleged conspiracies to the belief that Hoder Tier's last letter contains some sort of code. None of it has made it any clearer what happened that April night. 
Was Hodetir the mastermind, a conspirator, or just a scapegoat? No one is sure. And except for him, no truly convincing suspects have been identified, and the panel itself remains officially lost, even while amateur and professional sleuths continue to try to solve this historical mystery. Some believe that the painting was destroyed long ago, and others have spent decades pouring through every clue and searching through every inch of the cathedral. In its most recent restoration, the copy of the Just Judges panel was not restored in order to emphasize that the original is still missing, and in the hope that it may yet be found. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff you only get to hear about on the podcast. So one of the things that's really interesting to me uh, about paintings and painters like this, especially, you know, this kind of the Middle Ages and into the early modern period, it's amazing how much they relied on, the, like, the specific wealth of a town. Mm-hmm. or a group of people and like yeah, absolutely, the, yeah. the the van eyck's and uh, mm-hmm. and this painting in particular have to do with the, the northern renaissance as they call it which is kind of as the renaissance happens north of the alps because usually when you talk about the renaissance you're talking about the italian the renaissance. italian renaissance yeah, yeah yeah and you're talking about florence where you know they did all kinds of i mean again that's all this famous stuff but again they were all tied you know to the this one these one places yeah i mean every every great artist of the renaissance period had a patron because yeah. uh, it was expensive to do what you did and you some and you know you had to you know be able to devote a lot of time to it but i mean the just the acquisition of the uh of the pigments and stuff was extremely expensive yeah. and complex as well as the time to become a master in painting uh but and in uh, actually in the dutch renaissance i think that was fairly common that they would essentially be uh, patronized by a city i mean it said there would be a diocese or a city or something and they would be kind of that that city's artist uh, and that's how they would how they would make their living. So it is interesting that you have these great artists, and they are tied to that location so very specifically. Yeah, and this is you know this is a place where, uh, well, I, it is not all that I mean, common. This, this thing is huge. I mean, yeah. just I mean, just the commission to paint the Ghent altar piece. Yeah, uh, is absolutely. I mean, that's a lifetime sort of commission. And, and it might, as a matter of fact, it might have killed the what the older Van Eyck, right? The, yeah. the, the older brother uh, didn't live through it, and it was so. Jan Van Eyck is better known. Uh, uh, but uh, but he might have taken over this project in the middle. But I mean that's you know, that's how big a, a piece this is. Yeah, it might have all been planned by the the older brother. I think it's interesting that he you know he mentioned oh this this my brother is the best in everything and yet he's the one who's who's more famous is it, is. No, I mean that might have been referring to the painting itself. It might have simply been saying. He was the supervisor, you know, I was yeah. the second. It might not have been, you know, like, he might not have been, I'm not sure how many brothers going to agree that he was the best at everything <laughs> all the time or anything like that. It might be That's referred fair. to this one piece, but it is true. Uh, and it, it might be, though, because I'm, why am I forgetting the older brother's name? But uh, Hubert, he, I think. Hubert, he, he might have, uh, you know, his his life's work might have been getting halfway through the Gentalter piece, you know, the, yeah. the Adoration of the Mystic Lamb. Uh, and so it's just that his, his, you know, his brother not only, got to build his trade underneath his brother and not only got to take, you know, a big part of this very important piece, but I mean, he was, you know, still around to, in order to use that fame to become the, yeah. you know, the artist that he was. But this, this piece is so interesting because it is, it, it, in terms of art history, it's an extremely important piece in terms of, uh, you know, the, one of the first oil paintings and representing this whole Renaissance movement or the Renaissance movement, etc. Yeah. Uh, and that it has survived this long, uh, ex- extraordinary given, you know, the conflict that's gone on around it. And then it's been stolen so many times, <laughs> the most stolen piece of art in history. You've got all of these panels, you know, it all fits together very complexly. It's hundreds of years old and it's, you know, it's been packed up and stolen by, you know, by the, by the Nazis and by, you know, in the one piece is, you know, still yeah. not been found. So, I mean, it's really, I mean, there's so many twists and turns in the story. It's just fascinating. But it, it does start out with uh, this piece is so tied to that community, so tied to that church, so tied to that diocese. It is literally, it's, you know, kind of the living history, the breathing, yeah. heart-beating history. Uh, and, and, and that's why it's so important to the people. And that's why it's, you know, its story becomes so, it, it, you know, it's, it's not just art. It's, it is truly yeah. art as history. Well, and it's, you know, there were multiple pieces of it that haven't survived to uh, to the modern day. There's the, the platform, which had mm-hmm. hell depicted on it, which is totally destroyed. Uh, there's whatever this this outer frame would have looked like that could have been clockwork and engineering. Mm-hmm. Just just thinking about what it would have taken. And even the instruction where, where Jan says that Hubert was the, yeah. was the best. Yeah, that's missing still, too. Yeah. Yeah. And but so they, all, that this, the art, all the this art stuff. remains except for one panel. Yeah. 
which might be under the floorboard somewhere. I mean, Possibly. one of the one of the biggest theories is that it's still in the church. So I, you imagine after this much searching, you know, it's not stuck yeah, in the room closet, right? I hear they've looked real, real thoroughly, yeah. but I mean, who knows where this this thing it's is? Like, did you check <laughs> under the chair? You know, it, it does seem the... like you're, you're like, man, if someone hit it in that church, they hit it really. Well, it's huge. Good. It's a massive cathedral. So I mean, I mean, yeah, it, uh, yeah. but I mean, yeah. <laughs> they... They've had a couple of hundred years of hide and seek for so you think uh, they've, they've, that by they've now. Really... Well, well, not. I mean, it was 1930s, right? So yeah, it's yeah, it's, so it's not quite a hundred years of hide and seek. Uh, you know, you would think that if it was in there, someone would have stumbled on it by now. Crazy that they haven't. Uh, but I, who knows? I mean, maybe it was destroyed back. You know, back then. Maybe it was, or maybe it was destroyed when uh, when someone realized that they weren't going to get the money for yeah. it, and they were afraid they're going to get caught. Or I mean, so maybe it doesn't exist. Uh, or maybe it's you know buried in a, in a grave nearby. Or I mean, there's a hundred theories about where it yeah. is. It's just it's fascinating that it just you know it just disappeared and that it has never been recovered because the, all the evidence seems to suggest that it couldn't have gotten very far away yeah. from the from the church. Yeah. Well, and it's it's a tragedy you know to have something like that that survives so long and survives all mm-hmm. these. I mean, Napoleon steals it. Mm-hmm. The, the freaking diocese sells it, and the king of Prussia buys part of it, uh, and they still manage to get it back and bring it together. Yeah. And <laughs> Germans are still a little mad about that. Yeah, because well, that might have been part of why it got, it got yeah, stolen, so, right? So, and, the... and, and, that, and that actually, I mean, there's a lot of this that actually mirrors some other artifacts, including the other one that we're going to talk yeah. about today. But I, uh, but uh, it's, it's extraordinary, given what it's been through, that it's still around. And actually, it's in the news recently because they're doing a restoration, which, of mm-hmm. course, they have to do a thing every few hundred years. Uh, and one of the things that they found out is that in previous restorations, they had significantly changed the work. Yeah. And so they are taking it back to its more original work, which, if you look at it, I'm like the, uh, the, at some point, because the name of it is the Adoration of the Mystic Lamb. Yeah. Uh, and at some point, it was really kind of altered so that that looked as if the lamb is a sacrifice, like a, you know, like an Isaac sacrifice, yeah. and they're draining blood out of it, when in fact, the mystic lamb represents Christ. And so the original mystic lamb had a almost uh, very creepily human face to it, yeah, uh, because it was representing the sacrifice of Christ. And so you can imagine if you spent your entire life with that little bad lamb that someone you know, in the 15th Goes century, in. painted over and, you know, made it look more like a lamb. Uh, and then now they're going back to the, you know, the Van Eyck brothers original, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's quite a radical change. So it, it did survive, but it also changed radically yeah. in that time. Uh, and that, that is maybe best illustrated by this one panel. That's, yeah. you know, totally a reproduction because the, because it was stolen. It's a really interesting piece of history, you know, how art restoration has changed and what we've done in art restoration, too. I mean, when they altered it, you know, they altered it for reasons and whether that was Mm -hmm. just because they thought that the sheep looked creepy or uh, because they had, you know, they thought that that was some kind of weird choice. Yeah, they were changing how they saw doctrine. Yeah, Yeah, and and it was a changing. Well, I mean, you know, someday someone took a hammer and knocked all the bits off of the sculptures that were in the Vatican because they, they decided that was we couldn't have boy parts anymore. Uh, and and you know, these altar pieces are fascinating because if you go into any nice cathedral in Europe, they all have one, and yeah. it's always going to have you know multiple panels, and it's going to they're going to have it closed sometimes and open sometimes, and that and and those have a lot of doctrinal meaning too, uh, and they're all old, and so you know you you wonder if you in terms of the restorations, you know I, I mean how much have they changed? So it's it's kind of interesting that even art, which you think of as being kind of permanent, is actually changing with the times, yeah. uh, and that you can go back. Uh, you know, as a restorer, and you can literally go back through the history of that art. Uh, and so, I mean, this is just an illustration of all of that that makes, you yeah. know, art history so fascinating. When you're changing what was changed, you know, there's a, there's a question there about what is what is destruction and what is not and stuff like that. But it's, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I understand also why you'd want it to be the original. You know, this isn't known as whatever the restorer's name was. This is known as a Van Eyck piece. And yeah. Well, I mean, that's, but that's the sensibility now. When they, when yeah, they did the other restoration, true. and it might be how much money you have to pay the restorer. I mean, are you are you hiring the paid by numbers guy down the street? Or are you hiring someone? I mean, it's kind of hard to find someone who has the skill of a Van Eyck. But the you know the the sensibility today is that we want to go back to the original piece and do it as as. But yeah. uh, the sensibility another time might have been that we have to you know we have to tie this to the doctrine of where the church is today. One of the things that I think of about how that's shifted. Um, we did an episode on on this dog named Barry, 
Mm-hmm. And he was a he was a. a oh, that's right. It, they had <laughs> uh, literally altered the stuffed dog to look yeah. more like people thought he should look like today. Yeah, because because yeah. the the breed didn't look the same back then, and so they changed it so it looked more like the modern breed. Yeah, because people are looking and saying that's not a Saint Bernard. I'm like, well, yeah. you know, we use our breed standards to to actually literally change dogs, and yeah. that is you know, dog breed history is really interesting because we we've done others too, uh, where I mean they didn't, they didn't look the same as they look today. I mean, you think about that, and you know, we, it's because we selectively breed dogs. But I mean that there's that history of the breed that you can literally see through the yeah. you know the nature of the dog and, the, and the, the same dog that we're so used to today might look very different. Yeah. yeah. So if we're gonna if we're gonna alter Barry's stuffed form because yeah. that's literally Barry that they have to make him look more like people want him to be, then uh, then you can see how people were altering yeah. these pieces of art. But I mean, also time. I you know the age changes them. Some things fade and things yeah. like that. And and I mean that's all that's all part of the nature of of art and the pigments that are used. And, well, and they all seem to have these. You know, they get these little cracks and stuff like that. That's all just from. Of course age. they do. Well, I mean they're oil yeah. painted. They're they're yeah. they're intended to be that way. Yeah. yeah. I mean that was that's how oil paint works. But and then you know if someone's packing that thing up and you know running off with it. Then you know you can Actually, see how they, that's they ran gonna... it. I, you know they tried to get it to Rome and it got stuck in. In France, France and then captured by the Nazis. <laughs> they almost, and then, then the Nazis tried to find the missing yeah. piece and even they couldn't find the missing piece. I mean, Which that's... is, that's a little funny too. But you know, yeah. they also, they had actually cut, they had cut the panels in half so that they could display both of them, uh-huh. which <laughs> seems just like wanton destruction to me. Like, that's Yeah, just, yeah. I mean, if I'm going to the original piece. Because, well, I mean, imagine you've got a board and you're sawing it in half, uh, you know, yeah. lengthwise. Without yeah. trying to harm the painting on either side, and who knows how thick the board was, I wonder how they did that. I, you know, I would like to have seen the process for that. Yeah, I did, but yeah, so. but I mean, it's a radical, and that's how you've lost things like the uh, you know the clockwork mechanisms and all yeah. this other stuff, uh, you know, because uh, so you know, I think if you looked at the sensibility today, this is if we were trying to preserve a piece of art that we would be trying to preserve it, and it's you know it's perfect in, in natural form. Uh, but I mean, if you're looking over the course of hundreds of years, you know, people look at those pieces differently. Yeah, but I mean, you know, the you know, the Parthenon, because we, we did a story on that. I mean, the Parthenon Tragic perfectly too. preserved for for thousands of years, and then just gets blown up in a stupid, pointless modern war by idiots with with uh, yeah, who put a pieces, bunch of bombs right? in it deliberately. They put all their their ammo in it because they figured the well, yeah, yeah, they use that they use it as an ammo dump, and then other people shot mortars at it. And you know, and and in in a war that's you know the war is forgotten, and the, and the, yeah. and the ancient pieces is, is is so you can see why you know why why we have the sensibility today. I mean, that's that's, that's what we have today but on mm-hmm. the other hand i mean there's you know in the united states is a big question over tearing down statues and, and yes. changing names and etc well, and, and what part of that is is and i mean it's it's been a, it's always been a question of you yeah. know when you when you tear down a statue what you do with it afterward yeah uh, well, i mean not been... just but i mean so there's all sorts of works of art and things like yeah. that that have those questions and so at, at some point the politics of why we would take it down today Will have passed by, you know, over a few hundred years. No one's gonna care, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but, uh, and then they might be thinking about, you know, let's just talk about the art. But I mean, but in the in the moment, you know, the you know the politics of why we like or dislike a piece of art uh, are are more important. But when, yeah. when that piece has survived over, you know, four, five, six, seven, ten centuries. Uh, then it's the, the you know the history is more important than and people forget the politics. So who knows yeah. the politics of why we wanted a different looking lamb? But I mean, yeah. that might have looked, that might have been important at the time, and 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 now we go back and look at it and say, you know, well, we're, gosh, the you know the iconoclasm, they they had to protect it because mm-hmm. at that point it was the, the fact that it was you know seen as essentially heret, heretical, uh, it was more important than you know the value of the the piece of art separate from you know its religious meaning, and they would have been happy to burn it, and that's I, I mean I think you know today we we see that as extremely abhorrent, but at, at the time there were well I mean clearly at the time there were people who thought that was abhorrent too, but mm-hmm. maybe not all for the same reasons. You know, and you know there are people that are you throwing soup at at uh, pieces yeah. of art now. Uh, because they, they want to make that. a political statement about something else, you know, or, or well, I mean, we find out too that there was because the, the, the feminist movement destroyed some some art yeah. that was in, and and that's uh, uh, there's been other cases where that where someone yeah. because they're angry or because they're crazy or whatever slash up a piece of art that's you know uh, otherwise it's managed to live you know oh, survive someone, hundreds of years. Yeah, someone did that to the uh, that famous painting of. Uh, uh, Ivan the Terrible, when he killed his son, someone attacked that fairly recently, tried to attack that piece. 
I don't know. I, I, I you know, I, I'm very well, much. Well, I mean, if you're trying where... to if you're trying to make a political point, then taking you know a priceless, ageless piece of art and destroying yeah. it. I mean, there's there's not much more power than that, right? No. Well, and you can't. It's if you destroy it enough, you know, you can't get it back. We've gotten pretty good at uh, restoration these days, but it's it's still you know i mean this this stuff is more ephemeral and you think of how much art uh, you know from what we what did survive i mean how much of it didn't and that's yeah that's, oh, that's, that's a frightening. fair point yeah uh, there's there's so a hopefully lot of hopefully for destroyed. the most part the best of it survived but uh, you hope so and and so, people uh, certainly... so this the thing about this this particular episode is that this gent piece represents all of that it's a it's yeah. a fantastic mystery it's oh, still yeah. it's still and and it, you know, it says a lot about history that the the cheese theft was more important at the moment, the wheel of cheese, and that the, the best evidence that we have was the guy that was stealing the cheese. Might yeah, have might been have the seen best witness that we had. Someone. I mean, there's all parts of this that are just a crazy story, and then just the the perplexing. Where is it? I mean, there are still detectives yeah. now saying it's got to be somewhere. You know, you know. But I guess it could have been in that time. It could have been moved in a huge distance, or it might have been destroyed by people who just didn't want to be. Yeah, I mean, you know. who knows? It might have been destroyed at the time. There, I mean, you can say, you know, because I, I don't know that there was a lot of advantage to them destroying it because that was their only leverage. But on the other hand, if you destroy it, you might get away with the crime. <laughs> yeah, even if you didn't get you the money, at least you're not because gonna... they were they were jacking them around for the money. And yeah. it's an interesting story that the man that obviously did it or seems to have obviously masterminded it at least part also it. seems not to have been physically capable of yeah. of, of doing the theft. Well, and you don't know. I mean, you know he says the letters all said we uh, but uh -huh. I, who knows what that means i mean you could just be saying we because you know you want to keep yeah. you're trying to throw them off the track uh or i mean it could have been part of some some larger conspiracy that's a weird story he didn't need the money you know he, he, yeah, he was he a deacon the of the church and what was so he doing? you know and there's some conspiracy theories that like the church was doing it to uh you know to get it to, to get people to donate or whatever yeah so so i mean it's and then it's fascinating and this piece never never and they return you know half of it they return the john the baptist piece yeah, but they don't return just judges, and you know why? And uh, and then you know the other question is that you know the person that did the reproduction, you know, it looks close enough to it that did they were the, did they have the original with them? Yeah, that's I mean, so, that's an I mean, interesting. It, it, an it sounds interesting you know it sounds like an inside job if you're a conspiracy theorist, uh, but it certainly is is weird by any story. So I mean that mystery is fascinating, but this this piece of art is fascinating. You know, honestly, in terms of the YouTube channel, art history doesn't always do that well. Yeah, but uh, but I think uh, that there's you know, art is part of who we are, part of defines who we are. And so when you have a his, history of a piece that's his, that's a historical piece in itself, I mean, that's that's more than talking about art. That's talking about, you know, our, our whole of society and how we understand society at any given time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredible and, and you're right is that we talk about so so much else about what's going on around this piece and what it means and all, all these different kind of connections you can make. And, you know, then ultimately you're still left with the, where, where is this piece? Where has it been? If it's been anywhere mm -hmm. at this point. And, and, you know, you wonder if this guy is the, was he the dude who masterminded it? He was clearly involved or else he wouldn't have had these, you know, these copies of the letters, it mm -hmm. seems like, but how else was it? How was it connected? It feels like the, uh, the authorities failed on it. Um, but I also understand oh, I mean, yeah. they're they're in a rough position, but it sure seems like they had some opportunities maybe to. Uh, yeah, and they as well, you know, the detective work is different than it is. I'm surprised yeah. there haven't been more movies on the detective work, but you still got to wonder someday they're going to, you know, they're going to have to pull open a piece of drywall in order to fix some plumbing and son of a gun. It's, you know, there it is. <laughs> it's been in the wall all these years. I really you know, hope they, they find they it. They pull up I mean, the right piece of floor tile or. You know, this, this pew's gotten old. We better take it out. Oh, look what's under the pew, you know? Ooh, uh, I, I really hope that this stuff, you know, that this stuff survives uh, because I think it's... Uh, I sure it's hope so. It is a much better story if it's somewhere yeah. to be discovered than if than if someone, you know, threw it down the sewer or burned it in their fireplace. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you like The History Guy, one thing you can do is you can travel with The History Guy. We've done some of those before, and we're going to do some more, including one in the summer that's going to London and the surrounding area. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a great time uh, in uh, the new year. It's a great time to really look at doing something special this year, make a New Year's resolution to have fun. And I'll tell you the truth. I've done Take a Trip with The History Guy. It's a lot of fun. And what made it so special uh, is is not just that I'm there because of course everybody loves my sparkling personality, but uh, because this is people that are when you get a group of people together that love the history guy, you get a people a group of people together that share a lot of things, and and we became very close best friends. The people that went with me on the last ticket trip of the history guy, we still talk almost every day, 
Uh, we have a chat channel and we've never given it up. And so this is a great opportunity for you to come and meet a bunch of people who share your passion uh, and uh, as well as the history guy, but not you will find everybody on this trip is someone that you want to get to know. Uh, and it's a great trip to the United Kingdom. It is a really cool schedule. Uh, we really tried to put together something that did a lot of different things, goes to a lot of London neighborhoods. It does a lot of, you know, stuff, you know like the archery training and you know, clay pigeon shooting and cocktail tasting. Uh, goes down to the Cotswolds, which are beautiful, down to, uh, 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 and so I mean it's it's actually the the schedule's fairly packed, but we're also going to have a fair amount of time to be able to choose to do some other things too, which we're talking about there. I'll also be out a couple days before and for probably about a week after. So anybody wants to add days on, uh, I'm certainly willing to figure out what anybody wants to do. I'm going to be, I, I hope, fingers crossed, going to Tank Fest. I hope I'm going to be part of the Tank Fest schedule again this year. Uh, that hasn't been confirmed yet, but, uh, you know, been there before and love Tank Fest. If not, I'll just go down and watch them drive the tanks. But uh, so take a trip with the history guy. Uh, this is a trip to London, June 15th to the 20th. Uh, or it starts in London, but it's going to go all over the, the central UK there. Uh, and you can get, it's called Trova Trip. If you just look up Trova Trip, the history guy, you will see the sign up for London. Important, there are a few early bird seats still available. So if you get in quickly now, sign up quickly now, you get a bit of a discount. But uh, if you want to come on the trip with us, you have to be signed up before March 3rd. That's the deadline. So we have a little bit of time to make a decision. But you know how it works. Uh, if you don't plan that trip, it doesn't happen. If you plan it now, you can plan your schedule around it. So Sign up today. Go out today to Trova Trip, the History Guy. Sign up for that trip to the United Kingdom with the History Guy. It is going to be a lot of fun. We really have there's lots more room for, for lots more signups. And so, and I really, you know, want to get a chance to meet you. So come along and spend some time with the History Guy. I promise you that if you come on this trip, you will get good FaceTime uh, with yours truly, the History Guy. Next up, the History Guy tells the thrilling story of the theft of Goya's Wellington. On August 21st, 1961, a portrait was stolen from London's National Gallery. The portrait had only been on display for 19 days before it was stolen, and authorities would search for the painting for years while receiving a series of ransom notes. The theft would eventually lead to a significant change in British law, and so affected the national psyche that it was made a minor plot element in a James Bond movie. The theft of Francisco Goya's portrait of the Duke of Wellington deserves to be remembered. Arthur Wellesley, the first Duke of Wellington, is considered by some historians to be one of the most brilliant military commanders of all time. He never lost a battle in his 32 years of service to the British crown. Some of his most notable achievements took place during the Peninsula War, a conflict between Napoleon Bonaparte's French Empire and the Spanish crown. Wellington would go on to defeat Bonaparte at the famous Battle of Waterloo in 1815. Wellington's portrait, painted from 1812 to 1814 by the legendary Spanish court painter Francisco Goya, was commissioned by the Spanish crown because of Wellington's service in the Peninsular War, including helping to free the city of Madrid. Goya, the artist who created the stunning masterwork, was a tempestuous creator whose later works would be marked by darkness, disturbing themes, and what some art historians have called madness. By 1812, Goya was deaf, having lost his hearing to an illness. Some say he threatened Wellington with a pistol to get him to sit for the portrait, but there's no historical evidence to support that story. Comparing Goya's portrait of Wellington to other depictions of the general, his Wellington is drawn in the light, with red highlights popping in his hair. It is a curiously colorful portrait, especially when compared to Goya's other, later works. On his uniform, Wellington carries the Order of the Golden Fleece, an honor bestowed by the Spanish. His eyes are drawn large and seem sad, even though the painting was done after what some historians consider one of his greatest victories. Wellington was known to have said, Nothing except a battle lost can be half so melancholy as a battle won. Despite his many successes, he saw much of dead and sacrifice through his career. Perhaps that is what Goya attempted to capture in the portrait. Wellington gave the completed painting to his sister-in-law, who in turn gave it to her sister, Louisa, who was the wife of the 7th Duke of Leeds. The portrait remained the property of the family until 1961, when the 11th Duke of Leeds, John Osborne, put the artwork up for auction. The portrait was sold to an American art collector and oil tycoon named Charles Reitzman for £140,000, but the British government was appalled that a master work of a British hero like Wellington would be sold to a foreign collector, and so they put a hold on the permit that would allow the painting to be shipped. Reitzman, who disliked the sudden attention garnered by his purchase, offered to sell it to the British government for the cost he paid at auction, £140,000. There was a scramble, and between a foundation and additional government funds, the transaction was completed. 
Everyone breathed a sigh of relief. Goya's Wellington was to remain in England. The National Gallery in London set up a special display for the portrait to celebrate its acquisition. A special frame was constructed for it, and it was displayed all by itself, a decision which was probably lamented later. Until the theft of the Wellington, the National Gallery's biggest concerns had been defacement of the art, threat of fire, or war. Suffragettes had damaged paintings at various times in the gallery's history. Suffragette Mary Richardson slashed the Rokebee Venus by Diego Velazquez with a meat cleaver as a political protest over the British government's arrest of Emmeline Pankhurst. On August 22, 1961, the portrait of Wellington was missing, but at first there was a delay in reporting because museum personnel assumed that the painting was a way to be cleaned. As soon as it became clear, though, that the painting had been stolen, the British government jumped into action, searching nearby bus stations and train depots, trying to get the painting before it could be removed from the area. Through a few clues left at the scene, they deduced the thief climbed into the man's bathroom from a ladder placed in a courtyard that had been left open for renovations. The drop from the window to the courtyard was relatively steep, about 14 feet, and they believed only someone extremely physically fit would have been able to manage it, carrying an artwork with such a large frame. Although the frame had been constructed with emergency removal in case of fire in mind, it measured 33 by 28 inches and was built out of sturdy wood. Investigators also noted that the Wellington portrait went missing 50 years to the day after the theft of the Mona Lisa from the Louvre on August 21, 1911. They began to develop theories that the heists were somehow connected, perhaps a copycat thief, or even, some opined, the same person as a young man who was in his 20s in 1911 would have been in his 70s at the time that the Wellington was stolen, though the sheer physicality of the crime brought that theory into doubt. Though viewing the portrait was popular before its theft, even more thousands of visitors flocked to the display to see the empty spot where Wellington had sat after it was taken. Newspapers ran headlines full of shock and dismay. Phone calls and tips about the theft poured in from across the country. One tipster claimed he had sold the portrait and was going to sneak it out of the country on a plane. Another said he'd return the painting if a donation would be made to his favorite charity for nuclear disarmament. All were false trails, except one. A handwritten note with block letters was sent to the Reuters news organization that said, Query not that I have the Goya but went on to describe markings on the back of the painting that the National Gallery used to determine that the note must be authentic. The note went on to say, This is an attempt to pick the pocket of those who love art more than charity, and said that the portrait would be held for a ransom of £140,000, the same amount that had been raised to keep the portrait in the country. The note further went on to demand that the thief be given a pardon or held harmless from prosecution for the crime. This motive perplexed the authorities. Generally, they told the press, crimes were committed for greed, not charity. But the fact that the thief referenced the exact amount paid by the government and foundation for the artwork pointed to the idea of a person outraged by government spending. Anonymous tips continued to pour in. Reuters received a phone call from a woman who claimed to be the author of the handwritten letter. She said if the ransom wasn't paid, she would steal a Renoir from the National Gallery in retaliation. In response, the National Gallery upped security around its Renoir collection, but nothing ever came of the threat. The National Gallery offered a £5,000 reward for information leading to the recovery of the portrait. They said it was a crime that had caused the whole nation to suffer. Despite this reward offer, the investigation cooled until July the next year when another handwritten note, with a similar appearance to the previous ransom demand, arrived in the mailbox of the Exchange Telegraph. It said, The Duke is safe. His temperature cared for, his future uncertain. We want pardon or the right to leave the country. The authorities didn't respond to this letter either. Meanwhile, in the cinematic world, when Dr. No, the first James Bond movie starring Sean Connery, was released in 1962, Connery's character James Bond spies the missing portrait in the lair of the titular character Dr. Julius No. It seems that the theft of the portrait had continued to capture the public's imagination. In December 1963, another note arrived, asking for money for release of the painting and a pardon for the crime. Again, authorities did nothing. Finally, on March 16, 1965, the author of the ransom notes wrote to suggest the painting be displayed and the funds raised in that manner. Again, the note was ignored. The authorities could not negotiate. However, two days after the final note arrived, the Daily Mirror newspaper published an article with the headline, The Missing Goya and the Mirror, Our Sporting Offer to the Mystery Letter Writer. It suggested the art thief trust the Daily Mirror with the location of the painting, and the newspaper would do all that it could to get it displayed and money given to the charity of his choice. 
In response, the newspaper received a letter from the purported thief, asking if they could guarantee that they would raise at least £30,000. The newspaper published a letter in response saying that they couldn't make any guarantees, but they would make a good faith attempt to work with the National Gallery to meet the demands. Finally, in May, the newspaper received a receipt for an item left at a Birmingham luggage station. Authorities raced to the spot and they recovered the Wellington, tightly wrapped and seemingly none the worse for its years-long adventure. It was only missing its specially constructed frame. Attendants at the station said the portrait had been dropped off by a young man who gave his name as Mr. Bloxham. The entire world wondered, was this the thief? The National Gallery refused to work with the Daily Mirror to raise money for the art thief's charity, but still the newspaper congratulated itself for succeeding where investigators had failed for years. Goya's Wellington was safely back in the National Gallery. Arthur Milton Estro recognized the ridiculousness of the situation in his, in his book, The Art Stealers, when he wrote, The man who had once asked £140,000 for the portrait had ended up paying 14 cents to get rid of it. The letter writer was incensed by what he saw as a violation of his good faith. He wrote two additional letters to the newspaper. One read, We took the Goya in a sporting endeavor, and you, Mr. Editor, pinched it back by a broken promise. Furthermore, you have the effrontery to pat yourself on the back for your triumph. Animal, vegetable, or idiot. Everyone expected that to be the end of the affair. The thief could have easily disappeared into thin air, taking his crime with him to the grave. But in July, a man turned himself into authorities, confessing that he had taken Goya's Wellington, accidentally confessed his crime to a drinking buddy, and wanted to turn himself in before the reward money was claimed. His name was Kempton Bunton. He was 61 years old and lived in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. He said he stole the painting to raise money in order to pay television viewing licenses for seniors on fixed incomes who couldn't afford it. Button went through the details of the theft, saying he went in through the window, took the portrait in a van, stashed it in an apartment until the search died down, and then moved it north. The government charged him with theft of the portrait, theft of the frame, threats towards some of the gallery officials, and for depriving the public of the ability to enjoy the painting. Button's defense claimed that he was not guilty because he had stolen the painting with the intent to return it, reaching for a loophole in British law. The last portion of the Larceny Act of 1916 describes the crime of theft as being committed with the intent at the time of such taking permanently to deprive the owner thereof. Bunton said he intended to return the painting the entire time. His lawyer argued in court, You may think the law stupid on this, but the law is the law. If someone goes into your house and takes your television set because he wants to watch a football match and then keeps it, it is extremely irritating and annoying, but it is not stealing. The court found Button only guilty of taking the frame, because unlike the painting, it was never returned. The judge sentenced Button to three months in prison, saying, Motives, even if they are good, cannot justify theft, and creeping into public galleries in order to extract pictures of value so you can use them for your own purposes has got to be discouraged. Some suspected the judge also gave such a light sentence because he doubted that the elderly and overweight Bunton could have completed such a crime on his own without accomplices. Years later, there was a surprising twist that was revealed in some declassified government documents. It seems that Bunton's son John had eventually admitted to authorities that he was the one that stole the painting in support of his father's charity scheme. When authorities asked him why he hadn't come forward while his father was on trial, he said that he was merely respecting his father's wishes. It was John Button, who was young and spry, who had snuck into the National Gallery and stolen the painting, although his father had helped him to stash it and to write the letters. And then when the newspaper promised to raise the funds, he was the one who played the role of Mr. Bloxham, who had dropped the painting off at the drop-off point. John Button was never charged with any crime with relation to the theft of the Goya Wellington. Some historians have speculated that the pair probably concocted the scheme in order to get money and had come up with the story about the charity donation at the point that it made it clear that the government wasn't going to negotiate with them because pundits on television had been talking about the very loophole that the pair eventually exploited in order to avoid most of the culpability for the crime. The 1968 Theft Act, a revision of the criminal law, addressed the theft of Goya's Wellington specifically with the addition of the words, removal of articles displayed or kept in churches, art galleries, museums, and other places open to the public. The government noted the need for the change, citing a striking recent instance in the removal of, from the National Gallery of Goya's portrait of the Duke of Wellington. 
in a way, the Duke of Wellington, who the poet Alfred Lord Tennyson described as one of England's greatest sons, continued to serve his country after his death because of the theft of his portrait that led to a modernization of the law that gave greater protection to important historical artifacts, religious relics, and works of art. Kimden Button died in 1976, but his charity wish was eventually fulfilled because in the 1990s the British government started to give TV licenses free to seniors 75 years and older. You know, so these two stories do end up having a lot of kind of interesting similarities. Mm -hmm. And I mean, of course, mm -hmm. there's there's some differences as well. But I think one of the interesting things is that they're both kind of framed uh, as as this like kind of protest mm -hmm. uh, that because, that, you know, they, they steal the the just judges because and they leave this thing about how, you know, it was taken from the Germans. And then with this one, they have this oh for people who love art more than charity, uh, which yes. is a. Uh, and but I mean, the reasoning for it, which, you know, of course, it, it might have popped up later as they were trying to, you know, not make it sound like they just stole it for money. But the reason yeah. for it is something that Americans have trouble understanding, because in the United Kingdom and in much of the world, you pay a license fee to own a TV. Uh, and so that what that license fee does is it pays for BBC. It pays for you to get yeah. TV without ads. So, I mean, essentially, TV is a subscription service in the United Kingdom, but that's a tax. It's a TV tax. And so his complaint was, you're a, you know, you're a retiree or a pensioner, they'll call them in the UK, uh, yeah. and you're, you know, you've got nothing to do, sit around and watch TV, and you can't afford to pay the TV tax. Yeah. And so he wanted to steal the painting in order to convince the government to help pay for the TV tax, which they did for a while. They had a subsidy for people yeah. over the age of 75, and I understand they just got rid of that subsidy. The other thing that's funny Gosh. to me about the, I mean, the tax license fee, which I mean, there's different opinions on that in the UK about whether yeah. they should have that or if it's too expensive, uh, but there's... It's a much lower fee for a black and white TV, which, which first of all, makes no sense to me because it's paying for production costs. And the, yeah, you know, wait, why would that? Producing, nothing's produced in black and white, right? Yeah, you're not, that's not going to cost you less to make it. But people still have black and white TVs in the Just, UK. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, they, they, have, they have black and white TVs purely because you can pay less <laughs> they, money for that. They still exist. So that you can pay 50 pounds a year as opposed to 150 pounds a year or 170 pounds a year or whatever it is to watch your television. That's a, that's a, that, if you're a pensioner... And the price you have to pay is to watch your TV in black and white. Man, that's cruel. Yes. That's cruel. Well, in these days, I guess, I don't know what the, uh, you know, you can stream stuff, so maybe you don't have to. No, 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 no. It's no matter how you get the TV. No matter how you so get the TV. So they work very, they're, they're very much trying to stop you from streaming the BBC without paying the, the television wow. uh, license fee. Yes. Well, I guess that's. Uh... <laughs> That's it's it's different than what we do here, but not to say that we, well, don't we watch the BBC here, but we just get it with ads, so you know we just yeah. pay for it the way we pay for it. Yeah, which is and we uh, we pay for that. That's how we've paid or for Netflix. television, or or that's you're the other alternative. There, uh, is that there about about a third of them think it's okay to have the license fee. About a third of them say let's do it with ads, and about a third of them say why don't we do it as a subscription service? So it'd be like yeah. uh, you know like Netflix. Anyways, we're as but we're that was a the cause off. for which the Goyo yeah. was stolen. <laughs> Uh, supposedly to pay your tv tax supposedly and i i can kind of understand why someone might complain it is interesting uh as, and we kind of saw that in the last one too where the, this idea of a piece of art uh representing you know national uh, pride yes. and that yeah, this... it was intentionally stolen as something that would have a yeah. you know a, a, a visceral national interest since since they wouldn't have well they didn't even want to let it leave the country it's a little mm -hmm. underhanded of the UK to basically be like oh you bought it well we're just not going to let it leave we're blackmailing <laughs> it well I mean if someone's if you know someone from the UK purchased Peel's Washington well, that's fair I mean, we'd no would we try to do something thing. to stop it right it is uh, it is uh, it's you know it's a matter of of what we think belongs to like, the the heritage of the nation uh, and uh, all. Pretty much all nations have that kind of stuff, and there's paintings and things that. It's why a lot of that stuff has ended up owned, you know, by the state or by a museum within the state. Uh, but some of it isn't, and that's that's exactly what you know what happened to this piece. Um, but they raised the money to buy it, and I guess I guess that his complaint is, you know, you, what you can raise the money to buy this, but not to entertain pensioners, which I guess I understand. <laughs> I guess I get his point. Or I mean, that might have been. A, I mean, you know, it was just to raise attention to the fact that you know retired people can't watch their television, or I don't know. Um, so it is interesting that it was stolen supposedly for a political cause, but they're really asking for money. Uh, it also has in common interesting is that the guy that eventually admits to doing it did not appear to have the physical capability to do it. 
Yeah, so it's, it's both of them were like some old yeah. guy with a plot, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, what eventually his son says that he was the one who actually did it, but he's yeah, never probably it was punished. Probably um, it was the son that was the one that was the one that I don't climbed through a is, skylight and hid in a bathroom and did all the. Uh, yeah, which required some physicality and then managed to get back down with what was a, you know, fairly heavy piece. Both of them, too. There's this there's this, you know, it takes them a minute to figure out that it's gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The guy at yeah, the church. Yeah, that must, that must just be taken out for cleaning. Don't they have a list somewhere? Don't they? I, I, they write that is, down on a legal pad somewhere. It is this, astonishing. Is, this is where the going you, is. Yeah. You think that this stuff that's like so important, you would think that, and you know, people care about enough that you know they won't let it leave the country, would have uh, would be protected somehow. And yet, you know, both of these cases, essentially, someone just walks in. <laughs> Yeah, but it's interesting because in the, in the in the scene in Doctor No, which is really, I mean, yeah. it's clearly you know facetious. It's it's it, they look at it humorously. So I mean, was the public that concerned? Because it would seem to me that if you know if they were truly that concerned, uh, then that then that the way that that was presented in Doctor No would not likely have been done. Because I mean, yeah. it, it was done as if this was almost kind of a joke, you know? Yeah, it would it would have. Have yeah, made it's... people upset rather than than been a joke, which is it's an interesting, but it's interesting too that you know it had this public, this kind of uh, reference in in the the pop culture, this pop culture reference yeah. within within the, a, and it's I mean I think people clearly were also like wow I can't believe that someone just walked in there, yes, <laughs> and at least I mean, at least this guy you know think from the window, National Gallery but... and that would be more difficult to do, uh, probably not the most valuable piece in the National Gallery and you know it makes no. you wonder you know. Yeah, you I know, mean, could you about could you get into the British it. Museum and make off with the Rosetta Stone, and then you know, so yeah. they find it twenty years later in somebody's garden? It seems like that should be that should be fairly difficult. Um, <laughs> you would think, you would hope that, the, yeah, you would hope that it would at least require a, a Mission Impossible movie to get. Yeah, it's, to as opposed to my plan is to bring a ladder. <laughs> yeah, to be, climb through the skylight, hide in the toilet, and just walk off with the thing. Yeah, yeah that's uh, that's that's pretty. But the, you know, they connected it to the Mona Lisa, which is an interesting. Uh, you know, which was also that, stolen. Yeah. Of course, the Mona Lisa didn't get famous till it was stolen. Really, I mean, yeah, the, the theft of the Mona Lisa is what made it so famous. But yeah, that that the same thing there were. You know, it was gone and for a while, and then they're like, "Oh, that's not off being cleaned. Then where is it?" And you know, oh, no. and it turns out it was stolen for political purposes, uh, and and it was recovered. So I mean, there's a yeah. lot of it's it's it's. I mean, there has certainly been art theft for art theft, but yeah. I mean, these these thefts were interesting in that they seem to be stolen for purpose. Uh, they seem to be stolen by not by the people you would think of as art. Yeah. You know, if you were to watch a movie, these were not the same sort of individuals that you would see involved in the plot to steal no. a famous piece of art. Uh, and uh, and they, they were, you know, they were doing it just to make some sort of statement. So it also shows the power of art as a cultural memory. I mean, how yes. important that is to the uh, to the whole cultural idea that people would, you know, would act out in that way that they're doing it with this this piece of artwork. Well, and it's I guess it's why people target art in protest at all. I mean, that's why people are throwing mm-hmm. soup on art. Um, it's it's less about I mean, you know, they they'll talk about how, oh, you care more about the art than, you know, stopping than the environment or yeah. Or, a, but it's still, I mean, the real reason they do that TV is cost. because they want you to, uh, they want the headline that says yes, yes. Uh, climate activist uh, you know, attempts to destroy things. It's definitely painting. working under the any publicity is good publicity idea. Yes. But yes, they're doing it because it's going to get attention and that's that's what they want is yeah, attention. They, they figure throwing yeah, this, that, you know. That group's also super gluing themselves to runways, you know, to try to stop yeah, aircraft so, and stuff. I, I mean, so, I mean protests <laughs> they, yeah, they do whatever yeah. protests they can I uh, we try to stay out of politics here but i could say that if you're super gluing yourself to something i'm i'm dubious as to the i well the and I, i've never i've never quite understood the and i guess they're they're in general probably not really threatening these these pieces of artwork but i yeah I, they, because they've got a glass cover or something and yeah yeah but I, i'm I, just i don't know i i've never been to a museum where you could just walk in with soup yeah, right. But usually, I'm just, I don't know. I don't. I don't like. Usually, they things. make you put your bag in a, in, a, in a locker or something in Europe yeah. to go view the museum. Uh, but you know, it's it is interesting that we we essentially. I mean, this is this has remained in a kind of a, a method of this kind of thievery, and it's true that both in both places the thieves at least you know claimed to care about the the value of the piece uh, that that it was a culturally important yeah. piece, and that's why they and that they didn't want to destroy or injure it to damage the piece yeah though yeah. we honestly don't know with just judges if they might have no, done that but we don't know yeah i mean the the you know the goyle wellington seems to have been taken care of and that they, their intention was always to give well matter of fact their defense later was my intention was to give it back which is another funny twist in this story because yeah, when that's... they changed the law 
They they essentially wrote an exception for stealing stuff from the National Gallery. Still, if a guy busts into your home and steals your television set, but plans to to give it it back, back. (laughs) it's not theft. But you can't do that with the Goya Wellington. (laughs) That's how they changed the law. But what they also found out, if they steal your TV... And they bring back the TV, but not the cabinet. Then they can be yes. they can be convicted of stealing the cabinet. Well, and he eventually they... he eventually was was jailed for for stealing the frame, which the, was an expensive frame that they had put some work into. But I, w- I would imagine I don't I doubt, them, I doubt there's any cheapo frames, you know, no, yeah, like the ones they, you get off of Amazon. I doubt there's any of those. I doubt they had the that frame at Hobby Lobby. <laughs> but I mean, you know, and the Goya is still there, the National Gallery, and there's yeah. lots of great museums in London. You can go see it. Um, Interesting. A couple interesting things about this one. One is that there was a movie made about this theft. Uh, what, two years, three years after we made the episode? Yeah, something like that. So, I mean, we had no idea there were, I swear to you, I had no idea that a movie was being made when we made the episode. But we, we presaged that, and so it got, it got another view. But one of the things about this, that's a good story. I'm not sure everybody knows, but I worked in financial services for a good deal of time. I used to work for Merrill Lynch back in the day. They're not paying me to, you know, this is this is not a sponsorship ad or something like that. I worked for Merrill Lynch. All my time at Merrill Lynch, I never made the Wall Street Journal. I mean, obviously, I didn't do anything important enough to make the Wall Street Journal. That was a big deal at Merrill Lynch. You did something to get in the Wall Street Journal. Ah. This episode, the Wall Street Journal Online did a story about art theft, and they linked <laughs> this episode. They said, here's an episode from the history guy talking about this art theft. And so I had to wait till I was the guy that makes videos in his basement before I made it to, the, uh, to in the in the in the Wall Street Journal, which all of my my financial <laughs> friends from back in the day, when it was always their great ambition. So yes, uh, this was uh, this one is is quite interesting. It was interesting that we kind of predicted the movie before the movie came, and it's uh, uh it's interesting because uh, apparently you know there was a, a little enough discussion about this theft online that when the Wall Street Journal yeah. was looking for something, or what they came up with, which was which was this kind was of the. A, the story it it is i mean it is just a, it's a brazen a brazen thievery they just yes. walk in yeah i by also people, think it's they call by it people a, who just don't see these are not you know these are these are yeah. people who had special forces training during the war you know well and they uh you know the fact that the newspapers who brings it in i mm-hmm. again understand what the authorities were doing here but still feel like perhaps uh there was something more they could have done. <laughs> yeah, when it the newspaper like, brings it in, but yeah, yeah and then they, the guy's mad because the newspapers you can't trust. We did, we too. stole it. It was a sporting endeavor, and you're not. You're <laughs> I'll not tell you not, not pay the ransom that you promised. <laughs> I I think it's funny that they actually expected to get the money after that. Yeah, that's um, true. Well, yeah, that was going to happen. Well, and that, I mean, at that point, you know, we don't know. Was it just straight up stolen for money, and then they yeah. made up later this this cause? In order to get out of the fact that it was clear they weren't ever going to get any money out of it, or the whole—I mean, the thing is, these were these were truly amateur thieves in in every sense of the word, uh, and and they had no idea what you would do, you know, how you would hawk the Goya Wellington. This was yeah. this was not a Bond villain. This 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 was not a Bond villain. No, and and you wonder, uh, you do wonder. Because you can't sell it. How do you sell the thing? And I wonder what, I mean, I, th- I think that about Just Judges, too, is, you know, how how would they have unloaded it? And I don't know. Is this sitting in a collection, some private collection somewhere, and they don't want to well, you know, it, it mention be. it because they've acquired and, you know, it You occasionally illegally. they discover things in collections that had been actually yeah. stolen years before. So it might be. In both of these cases, though, I think the idea was for to ransom it back yeah. for some purpose to the people that they stole it from. And that puts you in a you know in a bind because you know who you have to negotiate with and they know who they have to negotiate with, uh, and you know neither one of these I think worked out for the thief. If we if we learn anything, if there's a lesson to learn here, it's that uh, crime doesn't pay. Crime doesn't pay. <laughs> the cheese guy got off better. The guy, the guy, he, at least he got off with some cheese. Yeah, he he. Although I guess well, I no, guess they, they did catch him. him though. They eventually yeah. did catch the cheese guy. I don't know how much of the wheel of cheese. He had consumed he, before they figured that out. I don't the know. The fact, the fact that the he, know, he was not planning on giving the cheese back. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah that was <laughs> the probably fact. Not. The fact that the cheese guy plays heavily in the story. There's just some some humor to the story, aside from the fact that this is you know risking invaluable you know priceless yeah. pieces of art. Is that these stories are both just bizarre stories, and there's you got to find some humor in it. Yeah, the cheese that, guy's and, like, oh, I saw a black car, and there were two dudes in it. Like, that's yeah, I mean, that's, that's our a, biggest lead. The cheese guy is your story. The cheese guy is your witness. Is the guy that stole cheese, 
uh, and 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 that you know that the, the stolen wheel of cheese ends up playing into the story. That I mean, that really kind of uh, encapsulates the entire episode here yeah, of how was... bizarre these two art thefts were. Yeah. These were not these were not geniuses <clears throat> that were that they're going to make a movie on. These were and, and and yet from apparently fairly normal people and you know people who you know couldn't slip through the window or do any of the things that you'd yeah. expect you'd have to do. Uh, they successfully stole this art, and they just couldn't figure out what to do with it when they got it. I mean, that's what really happened to both of yep. them. They yep. would have gotten they, away with it if they had any idea what to do after you after you make your theft. But they steal it, and they're like, all right, now we send a ransom note, yes, and they yeah. both do. And, I mean, the authorities didn't bite in either case. They were just like, nope, we're not going to do this. Yeah, and, yeah. And, then, know, and, then, and then the criminal's like, now what? Now, now, what? now what do I do? And it worked out for Goya's Wellington that we managed to get that back. But I, I mean, gosh, it's just as easy, you know, that just judges was thrown in someone's fireplace because they didn't want to get caught. Because they didn't want to, they, yeah, they didn't want to get caught. That's a, uh, there's, I mean, uh, there's other examples of that in history where someone's stolen something that's so unique yeah. that then there's no way for you to well, be able to get rid of it. I, when someone stole, uh, what, one of the pairs of Dorothy's ruby slippers. Yeah. Uh, and they disappeared for years because, like, well, you know, then what do we do with it? And I think those actually were recovered recently. I want to say uh, that they were recovered, too. Um, I feel like I saw an article on that, but it's, it is, I mean, this isn't a, these are incredible stories and this is an interesting, interesting bits of history. Uh, and I, I mean, honestly, absurdity. these are both really good stories. They're fun yeah. stories to listen to. They're, they're compelling bits of history. They do talk about art in terms of what it yeah. means in, in history so that it's, you know, it's important when it's stolen. But, uh, you know, I would say as the history guy, I was disappointed these episodes didn't do better than they did because I think yeah. people saw the titles and said, I don't care about art history. And when you get to them, they are really good. I mean, just like what we do with the history guy. These are good yeah. stories. They're good stories of history. Uh, and, you know, I, I think, you know, it occurred on land, but uh, I think you maybe can call the people who stole these pirates, right? That's that's at least uh, it's it's art land pirates. piracy. Yes. Yeah. Art and pirates. So all good well, stories. Someone in the Just Judges one, some guy might have taken the original and used it to paint a, a replacement. So that feels like that. <laughs> I mean, that's basically piracy, right? It's piracy. In the, that's more true. in the <laughs> copyright, copyright piracy. <laughs> it's just like piracy. It's just like pirating your videotape. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.